This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Good morning. I'm Leanna Town. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hope you all had a great weekend. It's a beautiful Monday morning, September 24th. Birthday shout out to my supervisor, Andy McQuinn, and my sister, Elise Tan. Happy birthday! Well, we're going to start off the week with a couple episodes of parenting advice with Dr. Salen Gulgos and Dr. Corinna Ria. This first interview reminded me of an experience I had a couple weeks ago when I was visiting an elementary school, and suddenly all of these first graders just flooded out for recess, and there was a teacher on duty there scrambling to herd the kids away from this wet paint and trying to get them to stop hitting each other and play nice, and it seemed like it was just chaos around her. It was like they completely disregarded or didn't even recognize her authority. And I remember her saying that she was so drained and that it was hopeless to try to wrangle dozens of first graders because they just never listened to her. Well, I may have figured out the reason why. In today's segment, Dr. Salen Gulgos is going to teach us how kids know who's in charge and when they start recognizing authority cues. Well, whether you uh, think it or not, research shows that kids are paying attention and they're soaking up all of the complexities of life as a social human, but 13 months, uh, by 13 months of age, they have a pretty decent understanding of tense, complex social situations, making mental notes of who witnessed the offending incident, whether it was purposeful or accidental, and now some new research is also shedding some light on how kids learn about power dynamics in social situations, like who's in charge, who could get them in trouble. Here with us today is one of the authors of the study, uh, Dr. Celine Gulgos, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, to walk us through some of her learnings. Uh, Dr. Gulgos, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. What uh, This fascinated me because I mm-hmm. we wonder, we wonder if these kids are smart enough and um, are picking up some of the just kind of the very subtle social cues. But according to your research, even as young as as 13 months of age, they're picking stuff up. Uh, Yeah. So actually, the research that you're referring to is actually research that was done by others at Harvard, um, showing that even 13-month-olds are aware of these power dynamics um, when it comes to picking up cues related to size, relative size. So in that particular research... Um, they show that even 13-month-old babies can figure out that larger characters should be more powerful than smaller characters. Interesting. Now, yours was a little different. Talk about what you did um, uh, to, fig- to, to work with the kids and, and to do the research on how they know who's in power and who's not. Right, absolutely. So in my research, I was interested in how young children reason about their social world, so particularly how they come to understand that social structures like power shape our everyday interactions and relationships. So as adults, we have a pretty good understanding of what makes someone powerful, but we know very little about what children think. So those earlier studies with infants were showing that they were sensitive perhaps to um, some of the physical cues to power, But in our social world, power is so much more complex than that. We don't just 
um, look at people and decide on who's more powerful just by size. As adults, we have a lot more uh, ways in deciding who has more power. I mean, so it, it, it's theory, subtle, okay. isn't it? It's not always just the biggest right. body. It's it, there's subtle cues. Right, definitely. So as adults, we can look at things like who has more access to resources or so by resources, I mean things like money or food or um, who has the ability to control other people's access to resources or other people's uh, ability to achieve their goals and so on. Um, we pay attention to things like prestige, so the ability to affect um, other people's decisions or their behaviors, the ability to set norms or give orders and so on. So we wanted to look at whether children as young as three could identify these different cues that adults seem to be very attuned to in deciding who's in charge in various social situations. Did it, Um, by the way, because just as uh, for a little um, insight, this is this is some pretty, it seems like, groundbreaking uh, research, is it? I mean, has, has there any been research, have, have they done research on social cues at this young of an age? Um, so the developmental field looks at a number of different social cues that children might be attuned to at uh, ages as young as three and maybe even younger. Um, but surprisingly, even though power is so ubiquitous in our social relationships, very little research has been done on when children begin to understand social power, how they um, pick up on these cues. So, yeah, this was one of the first studies to look at children's attention to various cues to social power. So what cues did you see? What do you see the kids tuning into that give them the cue that that person possesses power in this relationship? Right. So we came up with five different dimensions of power to examine children's understanding in. And what I mean by dimensions is five different ways in which someone might exert power over others or um, five different ways in which, as I mentioned, as adults, we might be choose to understand that someone has power over others. So we chose these dimensions because, as I mentioned, that adults have this sensitivity and we wanted to see if kids also show the same sensitivity and the five dimensions were resource control, so one's ability to access more resources or control others' access to resources. Um, goal achievement, so the ability to achieve your goals before others or um, when they contract with other people's goals. The third dimension we looked at was denying permission, uh, giving orders, and setting norms. Hmm. So we recruited a bunch of 3- to 11-year-old children, and we what we did was we gave them short stories in which two characters were interacting over a specific uh, in a specific social circumstance and in each of the stories one of these dimensions were uh, manipulated so that one of the characters from an adult perspective at least was more powerful than the other one and we basically asked kids who's in charge to see if they had that same understanding adult-like understanding of power and what did you find out what did you learn (laughs) Um, we found that children as young as three years of age are actually pretty sensitive to social power in a lot of the different dimensions that we looked at. So specifically, um, they can easily identify that the person who holds more resources is the one who's in charge. 
they can uh, identify that the person who uh, achieves their goal is the one who is in charge and the person who denies permission is the one in charge. Mm. But when it comes to the other two dimensions of giving orders and setting norms, we found that young children can have some trouble with those. So specifically speaking about um, setting norms, children um, did not seem to associate the person setting the norm with the one being in charge until about ages uh, five or six. And they uh, did not associate, readily associate, giving orders with being in power or being in charge Mm. until ages seven or nine, which is really surprising um, given that children experience uh, orders a lot in their everyday life. So parents and teachers uh, frequently order their kids around. They tell them what to do. But despite that, surprisingly, it seems that children do not readily associate that with power. It was. I loved um, the example you gave uh, of a vignette that you use to mm-hmm. illustrate character-setting social norms. Like, this is what you'd read, I guess, to the, the children and then ask them questions. Diz was telling Fizz and their friends that red is the best color and that from now on, everyone should wear red. The next day, Fizz came to school wearing a red T-shirt, just like the one Diz had been wearing. Fizz told Diz, look at my red T-shirt. So just from that simple statement, then they could discern, okay, Diz was apparently in power because she was telling or he, they were telling everybody what to do. And so the kids could discern it as young as three that whoever's, you know, got the resources, achieves goals, and denies permission, the three-year-olds could get that. But were the three-year-olds able to get that Diz was in charge because she was giving orders? Right. So the three-year-olds were actually not able to Not able to do that, that one right. Out. Yep. That one was a little bit harder. Um, we saw that as young as five to six years old, that they could figure out that Diz was the one in charge because she set the norm. Um, but younger kids had trouble with that. Was that developmentally normal then, I guess? Is it is it harder for them to understand uh, giving orders and setting norms until they're a little older? Do they need to develop more before they can understand that? Or is it is it just something else going on? Right. So the, our findings are actually uh, consistent with our expectations regarding developmental um uh, trajectories, basically. So we expected that children would have an easier time understanding uh, power relationships in the resource control and goal achievement situations because these are sorts of situations where, um, in a sense, there's less that children need to represent. So I, mean, I can give you examples of someone having more resources or someone achieving their, their goals on their own without having to socially interact with others. Uh, but when it comes to things like permission, setting norms, or giving orders, uh, children have to be able to represent multiple people's intentions at the same time. So in other words, in the example of Diz and Fizz, a child not only has to keep track of what Diz is trying to do, so the fact that Diz likes red and thinks that red is the best color and that Diz is trying to intentionally affect other people's outcomes, and then also represent that Fizz is a follower and Fizz is trying to be like Diz and Fizz is trying to do what Diz said is the best thing to do. Um, so there's a lot of different 
intentions and mental states that kids need to represent in those situations, mm. which makes it a little bit more complex. Um, so, yes, it's in line yeah. with our expectations that they, those would develop later. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's take a break and come back. When we come back, again, we're speaking with Salen Gulgos, and she's wa- walking us through some of her research about uh, how children understand social power across their developmental stages. Um, She's walking us through some of the insights, and I'd love to find out what we should do as parents. Do we want to be training up our children uh, more in these social power constructs? Do we want to guide them more on this? What advantage uh, can we have if we could teach this to our children? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. That everything shines in a different way Dr. Gulbaz just taught us the five dimensions of power and that kids as young as three years old are sensitive to social power cues. But it totally explains why those first graders were completely disregarding anything that the recess duty was saying at the elementary I visited and that the sixth graders were very obedient. Because according to this research, it seems like kids don't even associate giving orders as authority until they're about seven or eight years old. So in the second half of this discussion, Dr. Gulgos talks about how much parents contribute to their kids' understanding of power and where she sees this research going in the future. Power's big in our world and is, I guess, socially there's an advantage to know who has the power, who's in charge. I mean, I see my children. I have six kids from 23 down to 12 and I see them going through these really weird social battles over who has more power. Sometimes the younger ones don't realize uh, that the older ones might have more power or think they have more power. And it becomes an interesting mm-hmm. developmental experiment in our family. What, what should we be doing as a parent to guide our kids through this? I'm sure a lot of it's natural. Do we want to be teaching them more about social power? Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, this is brand new research, and unfortunately, we actually know very little about how children learn about these social power relationships. So this means that we also don't know too much yet about how parents contribute to their children's understanding of power. Mm. Uh, So one thing to point out is that the children in our study were from a very specific small college town, so children of similar backgrounds in terms of what their family structure might be like or um, what the larger social structure they live in might be like. So I think one interesting and important um, next direction for this sort of study would be to look at children from more diverse backgrounds to see if um, the hierarchical nature of the environment that they live in or the family that they're growing up in contributes to how early they can recognize power differences. So, for example, you could imagine a child uh, growing up in a more egalitarian family, gender egalitarian family, for example, or a more egalitarian democratic society, um, maybe learning about power differences at a later age than a child growing up in a more hierarchically structured family or a more hierarchically structured society. Yeah. Um, But 
these are all speculation at this point because we actually don't have concrete data. Right. Now, as you mentioned, um, evolutionary theorists do argue that it's adaptive, that we uh, are able to recognize power dynamics early on so that we are, uh, at a young age, attuned to the social structure in our own environment, and so we can align ourselves with those who have more access to resources and it will um, guarantee our survival. So that's one theory that we should be learning these things early on because it actually helps our, um, you know, it helps us survive uh, in our social world. Yeah. It's, I mean, I was raised with four women in my family. My parents had been divorced. And so, I mean, even that, even just that difference of gender differences might, I wonder if they might impact how you approach power, how you take power, how you manage power, how you see power. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty complex um, little undertaking you're, you're going into. Is it, mm-hmm. what, what do you, um, what do you see just as parents that we should be doing? I mean, I guess part of it that's interesting, I thought was just pointing it out. Like even your five, I can't remember what you called them. You distinguish the five, um, uh, yeah, the five dimensions of power. I thought that was fascinating to think of, okay, there's those that have resources, those that achieve goals, those that deny mm-hmm. permission, those that give orders and those that set the norms. Um, even looking at some of that and having some conversations, not when they're too young, but as they get older. Yeah, I mean, it seems like kids are picking these up regardless of whether parents uh, actually tell them anything about it. So I think what would be interesting is to see how they're picking it up. So oftentimes in this sorts of uh, research, we find that parents don't necessarily directly and explicitly tell their kids about the social world. But instead, the way that parents talk about their social world can uh, convey a lot of indirect meaning to kids. Mm. So parents can often uh, maybe not be aware of the types of sentences or the types of words that they're using um, and how these words might influence their children's beliefs. So my hunch would be, again, because we don't have direct evidence for this at this point, my hunch would be that um, parents are probably not saying anything about power directly, but right. indirectly behaving in ways or talking about the social situations in ways that to their kids imply um, these power structures that adults are aware of and kids are just picking up on them mm. um, very easily. <laughs> yeah, what I think it's, it's kind of heartening is the idea that uh, they're going to get it anyway. You know, they, mm-hmm. there's just intuitive, yeah. natural developmental stages that they're going to get through and learn a lot of this. So, but uh, boy, just as a, as a, I don't know, somebody that loves studying this anyway, I think it's fascinating. Were there any results that surprised you in your study? Um, Well, one of the things that at first surprised us was uh, we were actually expecting, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, uh, we were expecting the permission dimension to be harder for younger kids to understand because, again, they have to be representing multiple intentions and multiple mental states in, on those uh, stories. So the permission dimension would be something like uh, one of the characters wanting to uh, play with a toy that the other character is playing with um, and asking for permission to do that and the first character saying, no, you can't play with mm. my toy, basically. 
And so we found that even the youngest age groups, so even the three and four year olds, were easily identifying the person denying permission as the powerful character or the character in charge. And this is actually pretty interesting because, again, this is one of those complex situations where kids have to be representing multiple um, perspectives. However, um, at the same time, you can think of how uh, common these permission situations are in children's early experiences. So it might be that they're just gaining a whole bunch of experience with these sorts of situations early on, and that makes them realize what makes or how permission, denying permission, makes someone be in charge. Or you can also think of, um, so the dimensions we have were to measure the breadth of children's concepts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely independent of each other. So in this particular permission stories, we actually did have some resources, like I mentioned, the toy. So it could also be that, that those stories were kind of also tapping into children's concepts of resource control and how that might determine mm. or how that might cue uh, who's in charge. So it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah. It's hard to interpret why that was happening. Well, and that's the neat thing about research. You're you're just getting started. Well, we appreciate it. Dr. Uh, Salen Gulgos, keep up the great work there as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington the more we learn, folks, the more we can understand how to influence our kids and what's really going on developmentally. Isn't it a beautiful, too, though, how so many, we're just they're just wired to learn. They're wired to learn the social world. Powerful. all about how and when kids recognize authority. So, once you've established authority in your own home, what do you do with it? This next discussion is about getting kids to sleep and how sleep can affect them. And interestingly enough, it's not just about authority, though. Dr. Corinna Ria talks about how the knowledge parents have about putting kids to bed and the confidence they have in doing it affects how their kids sleep. Sounds like a pretty big deal, so... Let's give it a listen. Our guest today is Dr. Corinna Ria, and she recently completed a study that might help parents get their kids to sleep. And we are so uh, honored to have you here. Dr. Corinna Ria, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Talk about uh, your study. Um, Apparently, the confidence that a parent has to put their kids to bed, their ability to do it, their, their knowledge that they can make it happen is a big impact on how well the kids actually sleep. Yeah, that is what we found. Um, It seems like parents who sleep more themselves have kids who sleep more, and also parents who feel confident in their ability to help their kids get enough sleep um, have kids who sleep more as well. Well, Explain the confidence factor. That seems strange. It, It doesn't seem like something you need to be confident about, but then the more I learned about it, I thought, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, a lot of studies have shown that um, when people feel more confident about their ability to make change, that they're better able to make those changes. Um, And in our study, we asked parents, you know, how confident do you feel that you can help your child get 10 or more hours of sleep per night? And those who felt 
more confident did have children who slept longer. That didn't mean they were sleeping the full 10 hours, um, right. but they, they were sleeping longer in general. Is, is, I mean, it, is it getting harder to put kids to sleep today than it was for me maybe 10, 15 years ago? Uh, is, it, is it getting more difficult? I think it is. I mean, we know that kids are sleeping less and less over time, and I think there are a lot of reasons behind that, you know, busier lives. Um, I think screen time and media might have something to do with it. Um, early school start times, I think there, there are a lot of factors. Um, but yeah, kids do seem to be sleeping less and less. And, I, and what, are, what are you finding in your research about uh, the, the actual amount of time? So if a parent sleeps more, their kids tend to sleep more, is that, is that just because they are confident or is it just because they love sleeping? Um, it, it's a good question, and it's not one we can really answer with our study. Um, so this was a it was a large survey of about 800 parents, um, asking them about their sleep habits and their kids' sleep habits. Um, so we know that parents who sleep more have kids who sleep more, but we don't really know why. You know, is it because they value sleep more, and so they encourage their kids to go to bed? Is it that? everybody's going to bed at the same time? Or is it is it going the other way? Is it that kids who sleep better have parents who sleep better because they're not waking them up all night? Yeah. Um, we can't really tell which direction it goes. We just know that there is an association there. Is it um, when, like, what, what drove you? You are an attending physician in the Division of General Pediatrics at Boston College Hospital and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. What pushed you into studying sleep habits, sleep duration, confidence? So, um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a general pediatrician, so I see, um, I see a lot of patients for their well-child visits, and sleep is something that we, um, we often talk about. And I find, I mean, one thing is I've been struck by is just the um, lack of, I think, knowledge of a lot of my families about how much sleep kids need and, you know, what, uh, what good sleep hygiene practices are. Um, and also just the the kind of ill effects that my patients are experiencing from not getting enough sleep. Um, so that's why I was interested in, in doing the research to kind of see, um, you know, what what kinds of things um, on in a family perspective influence child sleep. A lot of people have looked at child factors, but not a lot of people have really looked at um, parent factors. Mm. What are some other factors? So one factor is their confidence, the parents' confidence. Um, at putting kids to sleep. We'll come back and talk about how we can become more confident at that, but also how much sleep the parents actually take. Any other factors that seem to be kind of a parent's influence on child sleep? Well, the other things that we looked at were parent screen time, partly because we know that child screen time is such a big factor. We looked at parent body mass index, you know, kind of reflection of their, their weight, um, we looked at parents putting limits on TV time and content for their kids, and we also looked at the amount of physical activity that parents were getting. Um, mm. So basically things that we know in kids can be related. We wanted to look at those things in the parents. Um, but all those things, even though before we um, adjusted for demographic characteristics, um, parent screen time, body mass index, physical activity and TV limits were all associated with their kids' sleep. But after we adjusted for um, child age, sex, um, race and ethnicity, and parents' education, the effect went away. So it 
it, it doesn't really seem to be um, so much of a kind of family lifestyle um, as much as the, the sleep relationship itself, which is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. What, uh, what are some ways we as parents can, can be more confident in our ability to help our children sleep? Well, I think a lot of it is, is knowledge. There have been a lot of um, surveys of parents just about their general understanding of, you know, how much kids, sleep kids need and what good sleep practices are. And there seems to be a lot of um, misinformation out there. And I, I think that shows that maybe as pediatricians, we're not doing a, a good enough job at educating families. Maybe school systems aren't doing a good enough job. Um, so I, th- I think the first step is really just understanding how much sleep kids need, um, and you know what what good practices are things like shutting off the TV and the cell phone thirty minutes before bed and not having electronic devices in the bedroom and things like that are really important. Mm. Um, talk to us about how much how much sleep a child actually needs. Do I mean there? I keep hearing seven to eight hours is what an average adult needs. What what do our kids need? So there are um, a, a few different kind of official recommendations about this, and it, it uh, varies by age. But in the group I was looking at, the school-age kids, it's probably about um, 9 to 12 hours is what's wow. needed. Yeah, and so it's, it's really a lot more than adults would need, and a lot of people don't know that. They think 7 or 8 is, is okay, and it's, yeah. it's not. Well, and especially uh, we had somebody on recently that helped write some of those uh, – rules from the American Pediatric Association that um, was teens, teenagers need a, need a specific amount of hours. Like they need more than for sure they're getting, especially because we have a lot of them starting school earlier than um, some of the younger kids. Some of the younger kids uh, may actually need a little less than the teenage kids. So, I mean, I guess part of this is getting educated and then um, – being able to get your kid to go to sleep, getting them, I mean, that probably takes some confidence as well, getting them yeah. to actually do it. Yeah, it's true. And it's especially hard in teenagers, as, as you were saying, because yeah. it's, uh, you know, their natural tendency from a, you know, their biology wants them to go to bed later and wake up later. Right. Um, so I, I think it's true that in some ways we have it backwards and really the school age kids should be going to school earlier and the teenagers should be going to school later. Um, but there, there are things you can do, I think, to help your kids um, go to sleep, you know, having a really good bedtime routine and just doing the same thing every night with, you know, brushing the teeth and the book and going to bed, um, not having a later bedtime on weekends. Um, as I said before, making sure that you don't have screen time before bed, um, making sure the room is dark and quiet, all those kinds of things can, can really go a long way. Um, and then really just being consistent. You know, I think if you, if you vary your routine a lot, that really throws a kid off. Mm. It, 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 it's a crazy idea because back in the day, I'm assuming, everyone wanted to go to sleep. Right, because there was nothing else to do, and you were tired because you got up early and you had worked on the farm and you had had a really long day. You wanted to get to bed, and you know, got Nate God or nature's way of you know turning off the lights for everybody and making it cooler. Just may just know to go to bed. But now we have the screens, we have all of these interruptions, television, all of these stimulants that we take in, um, and now it really is an art form. I mean, it's yeah. getting your kid to go to bed is art. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I think in some ways we're um, 
we're fighting nature. I mean, our, our bodies want to work with the dark and the light cycles and things like that. And in our artificial environments, we're kind of fighting against what's natural. Man, let's uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. We're speaking with Dr. Corinna uh, Ria. She is attending in the Division of General Pediatrics at Boston uh, Children's Hospital and instructor at Harvard Medical School. She's here to walk us through some of her recent research on the importance of our own patterns for sleep as parents and how that impacts our children. Stick with us, folks, helping you get a better night's sleep and helping you uh, raise healthier, happier families. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about some of the common mistakes we make as parents with our kids, our teenagers, in helping them get to sleep and the impact our confidence plays as a parent um, and our confidence in how well we can get our kids to get more sleep. That's a big player in uh, in our children's health as well. Joining us is Dr. Corinna Ria. She is attending uh, pediatrician in the Division of General Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital and an instructor at Harvard Medical School. She's been um, researching. uh, She got a master's degree in public health and a a medical degree from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. We're honored to have her on the show. Dr. Corinna Ria, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. So when we think about... um, we want the confidence, and the confidence really comes from getting the knowledge we need. And then I guess some of just the practical – part of this is like we need the patterns, right? We need the habits of having a bedtime ritual, going to – consistently getting the pattern to happen, turning off our phones early enough. Um, I wonder sometimes if we have the discipline as parents that we need to have today to get this stuff to happen. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that's a problem. I think we're all so busy that your time at the end of the day is is precious to you, and um, I think it can be hard to, you know, really be strict with yourself and with your kids about getting them to bed and getting yourself to bed. I think that is a problem. What what does what does it do? What does a lack of sleep do for our children developmentally? How does it impact them? It actually has quite a lot of um, negative impacts. There've been a number of studies about this that have shown that um, kids have more problems with attention and memory. Um, they don't do as well in school when they're not getting enough sleep. Um, they're more likely to be overweight and obese. They can have mood problems. Um, it, really quite a lot of um, negative effects from not getting enough sleep. Is In fact, I guess it's the it's the chicken and the egg. Which comes first? Because is it the is it that we're out of shape anyway and that drives us to have other problems? Is it that we are not getting enough sleep and that drives us to become – to gain weight and to to be out of shape? We hear over and over about childhood obesity. So it's like it's – and now it's – there's a major obesity. It seems like epidemic. Um, are they related? I think that it's possible that they are, yeah. I mean, I think you're right that there may be a behavioral component, but they've they've done studies that show that the um, your hormones are actually different when you're not getting enough sleep, your hmm. appetite hormones. So, you know, your leptin and your ghrelin that people talk about, 
um, are, are changed by the amount of sleep that you're getting. So you probably are hungrier when you're not getting enough sleep. Man. And we don't even notice that or know that. And then we're probably not exercising or moving enough because we don't have energy. We don't have energy because we're not eating properly. It's yeah, a cycle. It's kind of a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, so, what are your recommendations going forward, and where do you think you're going to take the research from here on out? Well, I think one thing that would be interesting to look at in a follow-up study there there is outcome data from the study. Um, so, it'd be interesting to see whether parents who felt like they had more confidence were actually better able to to make a change um, a year later, whether their kids were able to sleep more. Um, but I think bigger picture. It'd be interesting to see whether um, this could be applied in a more practical way. You know, right now, a lot of the sleep interventions that are that are done in school-age kids are are school-based, and so they're really just focusing on the kids, and they haven't they haven't been that successful. And maybe that's because we're not we're not really talking to the parents. We're not really taking a, a family approach. And maybe that's something that you know either pediatricians or or the larger interventions could could try to do it's it's so strange it's it is a skill it sounds like and we have confidence in the skills or we don't um it's it seems like something that you would just do naturally but it's the i guess it's it really is something that needs to be learned and funny thing about the confidence is we tend to be confident at things we we've practiced thought about i mean you you weren't just a competent doctor Right. You had to go learn how to do it. And then your confidence right. gets better every time you practice it. I guess we as parents might need to just be more seeing this more as a learning thing. We need to learn. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think I think once you've done it and seen positive results, you're more likely to want to continue to do it. So I think that's another part of it. And model it right, too, because if I'm not getting enough sleep, my children probably aren't either. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's obviously um, – a very you know strong relationship, and I, we don't exactly understand why. But I think um, I think modeling could be could be a big part of it, and and also just how much you value it. What do you see as a pediatrician? Um, like, what what? How do they bring it in to you as a pediatrician when they're sitting there saying, "I can't get my kids to sleep. My baby, my baby's restless." Um, how do you go about sorting through it and solving the issue? Um, part of it is part of it is education, you know, trying to get a sense for um, where they're at, you know, how much sleep they think their kids need, and then maybe doing a little bit of education about that. A lot of it is sleep hygiene. A lot of people, you know, have a lot of screen time, have TVs in their bedrooms, even sleep with the TV on, mm. um, really have a hard time kind of winding down before bed. They're drinking a lot of caffeine, things like that. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And then some of it's just troubleshooting with them. You know, some kids have a lot of homework or a lot of after-school activities, trying to kind of work together to figure out how we can, um, you know, keep them in their activities and their productive mm-hmm. lives, but also increase the amount of sleep they're getting. There are a lot of com- competing demands on kids these days. I um, I will never forget our pediatrician. We went in, talked to him, and he was. Um, we were telling him about how we have to get a bottle for our our toddler. I don't know what age. I don't know what you call it. Older oh, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're like in the middle of the night. He just just needs a bottle. And he mm-hmm. looked at us and he says, "No, no, he doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't need a bottle. It's just that's just how it's. Again, it's a habit, right? We've created this habit of 
giving him a bottle in the middle of the night. And, and he says, really? He's, he doesn't. He can, you can go in when he's crying, love him, put him back down, get him used to the habit of just going to sleep. And yeah. it, it blew our minds like, oh, you can just do that? Yeah, you don't it, have to stick huge. with the habits. Yeah, it's huge. And infants and toddlers, you really, it, it's just like you're hungry at lunchtime because you always eat at lunchtime. Yeah. You know, it, babies and toddlers get into the same habits. They wake up because every night you give them the bottle, so they wake up for it. And if you if you just don't give it to them, then, yeah. <laughs> yep. They're fine. Is, is this too, I guess, this is going to demand some new training as well for the physicians, it sounds like. Yeah, I wouldn't say this is something that we're actually very well educated in. There have been some interesting studies of doctors showing that um, that their knowledge is not as good as it could be, and it's it's not something that's taught very well in um, resident training. That's right. the, you know the kind of the stage after medical school. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's something that um, we should be working on professionally to educate ourselves better about and to. You know, ask more about during our visits. There's so many things to cover, um, but this is an important one that shouldn't be left left out. I mean, I guess it really should be. I mean, when you're talking to a doctor, they're always they'll ask, you know, any sicknesses, any illnesses, anything abnormal going on. But maybe a common one needs to. We always talk diet. It seems yeah. like with your doctor, but maybe sleep. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think definitely. I think it definitely should be on the the list because um, often parents, even if they're struggling, they just don't think to bring it up. They don't necessarily think of it as a a problem they should be talking to their pediatrician about. But it but it really is. It's something that um, we would like to help with. So what what are signs that I mean, I, I you may think your kid's getting enough sleep, but what are some obvious signs that they're not? That should be waking you up and saying, oh, my heavens, I've got to get my kid to sleep. I I mean, I think the most obvious is just daytime sleepiness. A lot of kids will fall asleep during school Hmm. um, or or want to take a nap right after school. I think those are signs that they're not getting enough sleep. But I think some less obvious ones, um, you know, when, when adults are tired, they tend to just act sleepy. But a lot of kids will actually get kind of irritable or Hmm. hyperactive. so they manifest it a little bit differently sometimes. And if if you're really feeling like your your kid just isn't acting like themselves or they act a lot different on weekdays from weekends when they're getting more sleep, it, it might be something to think about. Are they, are they getting enough sleep or are they sleeping in, through the night? Um, which isn't necessarily where your, your mind goes first. But That's so true. I mean, because I, I guess they have to control their moods and it's harder to do that when you're tired. Um, so if you see a, a child that's really frustrated, hyperactive, bouncing off the walls, about 7 o'clock, it might be telling you something. Yeah. No, I think so. Um, I think it's something that you want to – it's something that's easier to fix than a lot of other problems, you mm-hmm. know, and so it's something you want to rule out before you start thinking about um, – other types of issues. Now, one thing I just had a lady in my office the other day telling me about how she puts her children to sleep around seven thirty-eight in the evening, and I'm like, "What? How do you do that? That early? Um, when? When should? When is a good a time? I mean, I guess they need nine to twelve hours of sleep, but I mean, I, I guess it doesn't matter how early you're putting them to sleep." I think it depends on the age of the child. I mean, for a school-age child, I think that's actually a great bedtime. Um, and you just have to kind of see when they have to get up for school and count yeah. backwards. Um, it's more challenging in an adolescent because it's not nat- they may need to go to bed at 9 o'clock to get enough sleep, but that's not natural for them. Right. Um, so that's a really hard thing, and you have to, until you know school start times 
change. It's something you really have to work on to kind of wind them down early and make sure that they're not getting too much sunlight exposure too late and things like that. Um, yeah, not having a big thing of stimulating hot cocoa at yeah. you know yeah. 7 o'clock at night. Well, yeah. I think it's great insight. Anything else as you think about it? Uh, we always kind of like to end on the one thing. What would be the one thing we as parents could do today to improve our confidence in putting our kids to sleep, making sure they get better sleep time? Um, I think just to to kind of have it at the front of your brain that even if they don't want to go to bed, it's actually really important for their well-being and that you're doing the right thing by putting them to bed early, um, even if they don't want to and even if it means getting to spend a little bit less time with them. It's just so important, and they're going to be so much happier and do better. Um, so it's, yeah, you're doing the right thing by putting them yeah. to bed earlier. Don't, yeah, don't think you're a bad parent. Uh, well, we appreciate you, Dr. Corinna Ria. Thank you so much for your work there. Keep it up there at Harvard Medical School and also in the Division of General Pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital. It matters. It matters. Sleep matters for all of us. Wow. So lack of proper sleep doesn't just mean your kids are going to be sleepy at school, but it could lead to a lot of other problems like lack of focus, obesity, improper study habits, hunger, and a bunch of other things, it sounds like. Well, pretty much what I learned from today in these discussions is that whether you're a teacher, a babysitter, or a parent, don't underestimate kids. They start discerning authority from when they're a toddler and in some circumstances even younger than that. And apparently they need lots and lots of sleep to function properly, even though it may be mayhem trying to get them to bed. So assert yourself. And that doesn't just mean calling out orders, but... It's also about the way that you talk about your world and paint the picture of authority. Assert yourself and your authority and make sure those kids are catching their Z's. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow with more tips and advice from Matt Townsend.